0: Section 11 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. Raleigh's First Voyage to Guiana, Part 1. After his journey to Dartmouth, Raleigh did not go back to the Tower, though it is uncertain when he was relieved of the company of his keeper. He was not again received into favor at court, or allowed for some years to exercise his duties as captain of the guard. In May 1593, we find him at Sherborne Castle. This manor of Sherborne, which lay upon the road between London and Plymouth, had attracted Sir Walter's admiration as he passed it on his frequent journeys to Devon and Cornwall. It belonged to the bishopric of Salisbury, which had once been seated at Sherborne. When Raleigh cast longing eyes upon it, the Queen, who was not scrupulous about the way in which she deprived the Church of its lands, made the Bishop give her a lease of ninety-nine years of the estate, which she made over to her favourite. Raleigh wished to get absolute possession of the estate. When the See of Salisbury next fell vacant, it was decided to make the gift of it conditional on a promise from the new Bishop that he would convey over to the Queen for the benefit of Raleigh, the estate of Sherborne, The first man to whom the see was offered on these terms refused it, but it was accepted by Dr. Henry Cotton, prebendary of Winchester, in 1598, and the estate of Sherborne was granted to Raleigh. In return, an annuity of two hundred and sixty pounds was granted to the see of Salisbury in perpetuity. From this and such-like proceedings of Elizabeth toward the Church, We may see that the royal supremacy was in its way as oppressive to the clergy as the Pope's supremacy had been. Raleigh made Sherborne his chief residence and did much to improve it. He shared the taste of the age for building and gardening. A great improvement was made in those days in the homes of the gentry. The days of civil war were past and forgotten. The fortified castles of former times were no longer needed. Men wanted comfort for their daily life— And a new style of domestic architecture sprung up, which has since borne the name of Elizabethan architecture. It was a combination of the old Gothic with classical architecture, the taste for which had been called out by the revival of classical learning, and it was admirably fitted for domestic purposes. The comfort of the houses inside was greatly increased. The walls were covered with tapestry or wainscotted with oak. Feather beds were in common use. Stoves began to be used in the houses of the gentry. Cupboards full of silver adorned the walls. China dishes and plates and rare Venetian glass were favoured articles of luxury. We read in the Dorsetshire County History that Raleigh first began to build onto the castle at Sherborne very fairly, but altering his purpose, he built in the park adjoining a most fine house which he beautified with orchards, gardens, and groves of much variety and great delight— so that whether you consider the pleasantness of the seat, the goodness of the soil, or the other delicacies belonging to it, it rests unparalleled by any in that part of the country. In his present retirement at Sherborne, he probably enjoyed the society of his wife and the amusement of planning and laying out his gardens, but he was not a man to delight in leisure. Shut out for a time from any chance of gaining power or influence at court or in the government, His busy mind turned to other schemes. The wealth which Spain was believed to gain from her colonies and conquests in South America filled the English with envy. They saw their own country poor, their queen obliged to be parsimonious, unable to engage in war from the want of the necessary money. To enrich England by founding colonies was, as we have seen, Raleigh's dream. The stories of the conquests of Peru and Mexico by Pizarro and Cortes. Had filled Europe with wonder and admiration. To gain a like rich kingdom for his queen, to fill her exchequer, to extend her power, was Raleigh's ambition. But he wished to do it in a different way from the Spaniards. He did not wish to imitate their cruelty to the natives. Instead of making the natives bitter enemies, he wished to make them friends, to bring their kings to seek the alliance and protection of England, and by gaining a mighty subject kingdom for Elizabeth to set her resources on a level with those which the Spanish king was supposed to have. With these thoughts in his mind, Raleigh turned his attention to Guiana. He seems to have laid aside his plans for colonizing Virginia, being dazzled by the wondrous tales that he heard about Guiana. Since the early days of Spanish discovery in America, the natives had poured into the ears of the eager and wondering foreigners tales of the untold wealth of Guiana, the country that lay round the great river Orinoco. Fables of the vast city of Manoa and of El Dorado passed from mouth to mouth. The name of El Dorado was first given to the king of this wondrous city, afterwards to the city itself. The empire of Guiana had greater abundance of gold than any part of Peru. Manoa for greatness, richness, and its excellent situation far surpassed any city in the world. To this city, it was supposed that all the treasure which had been saved from the hands of the Spaniards at the time of the conquests of Mexico and Peru had been carried. Gold was thought to be so plentiful there that the very boxes and troughs were made of gold and silver, and billets of gold lay about in heaps. The men of the country were said to adorn their bodies by powdering them with gold. The Spaniards had spared no pains to explore and gain possession of this land of promise— Between 1530 and 1560, seven or eight Spanish expeditions had attempted to penetrate into it, but the expeditions were unfortunate, and thousands of Spaniards perished in the attempt. Raleigh hoped to succeed where they had failed, and he hoped to succeed, not by conquering the natives, but by making friends of them. In Guiana, he could best find the wealth which England needed, and in no way could he better aim a blow at Spain than by snatching from her the rich prize which she so coveted. So in retirement at Sherborne, Raleigh planned his first expedition to Guiana. It was a splendid dream for a private individual to cherish, and its difficulties did not daunt Raleigh. His wife, however, was terrified at the thought of the danger which he might run, and she wrote to Sir Robert Cecil, whom she looked upon as a firm friend, begging him to dissuade Raleigh from his undertaking. Now, sir, she wrote, in February 1593, for the rest I hope, for my sake you will rather draw water, Sir Walter Raleigh, from the east, than help him towards the sunset, if any respect to me or love to him be not forgotten. We poor souls that have bought sorrow at a high price desire and can be pleased with the same alterations that we hold, Fearing alterations will but multiply miseries, but Raleigh was not to be dissuaded, neither indeed was Cecil very anxious to dissuade him, for he himself contributed to the expense of fitting out the expedition. The Lord High Admiral Howard lent a ship, and numbers of gentlemen volunteered on the expedition in fifteen ninety four Raleigh sent Captain Widden as a pioneer to explore the mouths of the River Orinoco, but Whiddon learnt little that was new having met with many difficulties and returned to england toward the end of the year raleigh was now busy with preparations for his own voyage and on the 6th february 1595 he sailed from plymouth with a squadron of five ships he has himself written an account of his voyage so that we are able accurately to follow his steps he reached the island of trinidad on the 22nd of march Coasting round it, he came to Puerto de los Españoles, where some Spaniards came on board to trade with the crew, all which, he says, I entertained kindly and feasted after our manner, by means whereof I learned of one and another as much of the estate of Guiana as I could. Raleigh was anxious to make himself master of Trinidad before going further. Had he not done so, he says, he would have savoured very much of the ass.' he took the Spanish city of St. Joseph, and made its governor, Don Antonio Barrello, prisoner. He then did his utmost to make friends with the Indians on the island, telling them that he was the servant of a queen who was an enemy of the Spaniards, in respect of their tyranny and oppression, and that she delivered all such nations about her as were by them oppressed. The result of his discourse was, in that part of the world Her Majesty is now very famous and admirable. The first difficulty which met the adventurers was the navigation of the mouths of the Orinoco. On account of the sandbanks and the shifting tides, it was impossible for the ships to go up the mouth of the river. So Raleigh had to decide to leave his ships anchored on the coast of Trinidad, near Los Gallos, and proceed on his expedition in five open boats, which carried one hundred men and enough provisions for a month. First of all, writes Raleigh, we had as much sea to cross over in our wherries as between Dover and Calais, and in a great billow, the wind and current being both very strong. They took with them an Indian as pilot, who promised to bring them into the great river Orinoco. But indeed of that which he entered he was utterly ignorant, for he had not seen it in twelve years before, at which time he was very young and of no judgment, and if God had not sent us another help, We might have wandered a whole year in that labyrinth of rivers. For I know all the earth doth not yield a like confluence of streams and branches, the one crossing the other so many times, and all so fair and large and like one another, as no man can tell which to take. The good chance which befell Raleigh was the capture of an old Indian who really knew the country, and who was able to act as their pilot through the sixteen arms which the Orinoco makes where it falls into the sea the next difficulty which beset the adventurers was the rapidity of the current. After rowing four days through the intricate branchings of the river, we fell, says Raleigh, into as goodly a river as ever I beheld, called the Great Amana, which ran more directly without windings or turnings than the other, but soon the flood of the sea left us, and being enforced either by main strength to row against a violent current or to return as wise as we went, We had then no shift but to persuade the companies that it was but two or three days' work, and therefore desired them to take pains, every gentleman and others taking their turns to row. When three days more were overgone, our companies began to despair, the weather being extreme hot, the river bordered with very high trees that kept away the air, and the current against us every day stronger than the other. But we evermore commanded our pilots to promise an end the next day, And used it so long as we were driven to assure them from four reaches of the river to three, and so to two, and so to the next reach. But so long we labored that many days were spent, and we driven to draw ourselves to harder allowance, our bread even at the last, and no drink at all, and our men and ourselves so wearied and scorched and doubtful withal whether we should ever perform it or no the heat increasing as we drew near the line, for we were now in five degrees. The variety of the scenery did something towards cheering them on their way. On the banks of these rivers were diverse sorts of fruits good to eat, flowers and trees of such variety as were sufficient to make ten volumes of herbals. We relieved ourselves many times with the fruits of the country, and sometimes with fowl and fish, We saw birds of all colors, some carnation, some crimson, orange-tawny, purple, and etc., and it was unto us a great good, passing time to behold them, besides the relief we found by killing some store of them with our fowling pieces. At last the Indian pilot led Raleigh and a few others some way up a branch stream to an Indian village where they were hospitably received, and got good store of bread, fish, and hens. To reach this village they passed through most beautiful country, plains twenty miles long with the grass short and green, where the deer came down feeding by the waterside. After Raleigh returned to the rest of the company he had the good fortune to take two canoes which they found laden with bread. This excellent bread so delighted the men that they cried, Let us go on, we care not how far. Two other canoes escaped their pursuit one of which they heard contained three Spaniards. On the bank they found hidden under a bush a refiner's basket with diverse things needed for the trial of metals. They heard that the three Spaniards had a good quantity of ore and gold with them. They tried hard to catch them but in vain. They laid hands, however, on an Indian who had served as pilot to the Spaniards and gave Raleigh much information about the gold mines. The Spaniards had told the Indians that the English were men-eaters, hoping by this tale to keep them from having any intercourse with the English. But Raleigh compelled his men to treat the Indians so well that they soon perceived the falseness of the Spaniards' tales and felt great love for the strangers. But I confess, writes Raleigh, it was a very impatient work to keep the meaner sort from spoil and stealing when we came to their houses, which because in all I could not prevent— I caused my Indian interpreter, at every place when we departed, to know of the loss or wrong done, and if aught were stolen or taken by violence, either the same was restored and the offender punished, or else was paid for to their uttermost demand. The result of this treatment was that the Indians came down in crowds to the water-banks with their women and children to gaze at the wonderful strangers, and bring them food—venison, pork, fowls, fish, excellent fruits and roots— above all, the pineapple, that Prince of Fruits, as Raleigh calls it. The English were hospitably received at the little towns, some of which were well-situated and surrounded with goodly gardens. In one of these towns Raleigh had much talk with an old chief called Topiawari, who was held for the proudest and wisest of all the Orinoquiponi, and so behaved himself, as I marveled, to find a man of such gravity and judgment and of so good discourse that had no help of learning or breed, Topiwari told Raleigh much about the different peoples of that country and promised to come and see him again on his way back. End of section 11.